The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Bash Master David Quintana, a uh, lobbyist here in Sacramento. And David, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. When I think of David Quintana, I think of the Bash, the back of session Bash. <laughs> you probably want to be thought for something else, but the Bash is really pretty cool. So <laughs> what's happening with the Bash this year? What's going what's gonna to go on? <clears throat> yeah, I, I've been getting this question a lot, and I think that's because we're two weeks away from normally we would be, I mean, right now my life would be so hectic um, mm-hmm. as we as we get, ramp up for the for the party um, that that occurs normally the Thursday before the Martin Luther King holiday. Um, obviously, we're not going to have the bash at our normal time, but we have spoken with all of the major sponsors and all of the folks that are deeply involved with putting such, you know, such a massive event on, and they all wanna do it. They all wanna do it. Um, they understand that right now is not the time. Um, January, the second week in January, it is not the, the time, it's the exact wrong time. Uh, but they, you don't wanna be a super spreader, right? You don't wanna have to. No, we're already concerned that this started spreading right after our last bash. So they're already a little concerned about that when we had 1800 people in there. Oh, God. So, um, we do not, we, we are going to have the bash. However, it's going to be much different this year. It's going to be right now, um, assuming everything stays on target and the vaccines get out and everything moves in a positive, um, in a, in a positive trajectory. The bash will be on July 15th. Um, yeah. So David, I should say we're on zoom right now. And I can see that there is someone delivering what looks like Kentucky Fried Chicken to you as we speak. Um, yes, so, uh, it was a successful delivery. There you go. <laughs> it's a bucket. Oh, this, I should say this is our first uh, podcast that we've ever done via Zoom. We usually do the, the podcast either in person or over the phone. This is the first Zoom one. And, and were you actually getting Kentucky Fried Chicken, David? I was getting – I'm having uh, – friend over for lunch uh, in the office. It's a very large, large conference room. It is. Um, you know, I got to say, you have one of the larger offices I've seen down there in that, you know, it's huge. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yes. And so we have a, what we call a COVID uh, appropriate um, conference room and the table is 22 feet. And so um, I have a friend coming over to talk about an upcoming podcast. Um, and I ordered Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dude, I'm a fool. Secrets out. No. <laughs> Secrets so out. You're, t- you're talking about now it's going to be in mid-July. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 do you expect, you know, hundreds of guests like you had before? Do you, is this going to be slimmed down a bit or what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. So what we're going to do, so this has become, you know, the bash started, you know, it's kind of funny. You know, the original bash was in the Hyatt or not the Hyatt, the, uh, what's the one closer to you guys? Sheridan. The Sheridan. Sheridan. It started in that hallway. That was the first one that we did, and um, it was in the hallway. Not even a board. Not even a, a ballroom. It was the hallway, <laughs> and uh, we had like uh, a Native American woman. God bless her. I forget her. I think it was Mary Youngblood, and she was playing Native American music in the background. And I think I had two hundred people. Um, it's so a lot. Yeah. It is a lot. <laughs> so that's how it started. It's not going to go back to that. <laughs> It won't, it won't be that. Oh, is it true you're getting Taylor Swift and Beyonce who had them all lined up? That's what we heard. That was the rumor in the Capitol. Uh, yeah, no, I don't get along with Taylor. So we decided not to have her. <laughs> so the rumor I heard is that you're going to actually have Dr. Fauci do his rap live. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be huge. No, we, um, well, I'll get to the entertainment in a second. But as, as we talk about the new bash and what it's going to look like, it's going to be much more exclusive. So the reason I talked about the first one was 200 is that it's now grown to almost 2000 people, right? And um, we are well into the six figures in what it costs to put on well into the six figures. I, I'm not going to say the amount, but 
it's a lot of money. Um, so, so it has grown, it's grown exponentially. It's not, we can't do that this year. We understand that. Um, the last one we had was by far, I believe the best as far as music and, and um, inter- as far as entertainment and the food and the, and the alcohol and the setup, it was the best. I have to um, say, you know, I, I had, I was not familiar with little John before the bash. I mean, I'd heard the name, but, uh, but he was spectacular. He was spectacular. I've, I've been going to live music events since 1984 or something like that. You know, I've seen thousands of artists perform uh, around the world and he was up there in the top 10. He was just outstanding. It was really unbelievable. And the best part of the night, I, you know, because I wasn't that familiar with him, I, I kind of went to the back and let people who were probably bigger fans than me move to the front. And so I was way in the back and I looked over at the coat room and the people that were the employees, the younger employees uh, of the restaurant that were working in the coat room were losing their goddamn minds. <laughs> I thought they were going to bounce off the walls. They were so excited. They dancing. They knew every word to every song he did. Every word. It was incredible. I mean, it was just, it was really amazing. So yes. it's good you don't have to top that because I don't know how you could. I know. Well, we're going to try. I'm going to try to top it this year because um, I didn't think I would be able to top E40 the year before. E40 just turned it out. Um, and same thing, everyone knew the word to every one of his raps. Um, and he, what I liked about him is he had a really dirty rap, E40, but he didn't say it. He uh-huh. let the crowd say it. So, hey, it's on you. It's not on me, right? If you want to say that. And they did. Um, so I thought that was pretty tricky how he did that. How he, how, you know what I mean? How he, he lived up to his promise to us to keep it relatively clean. Um, but he just let the audience, you know if they chose to engage and they did so, but, but Lil John was amazing, not even close. And then he got on the stage with the band. Yeah. That he had a set up a VI, a little mini VIP section for him in the, on the dance floor. He had a tent set up, which yeah. was just for him and his posse and whoever he wanted back there. And I went back there and we had the same birthday, January 17th, which was the day of the bash. And he and I did shots of a Patron with orange. He only does shots with orange. He doesn't do it with a lime. And he was like, hey, man, do this. You'll never do shots. Well, I don't even drink. And so I told him, you're right, little John. I will never do shots unless I do orange again. So that'll be an easy promise to keep. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was, he was there late because I know uh, Joe T, who works with us, was there. And, and she said every time she turned around, he was back up with the band again. And was he was there very late and, you know, having a great time. And I know some folks in the band just said he was just so a delight to work with. And he was so enthusiastic about being there and having a great time. Like, man, no, he, he, he honestly, Tim, he closed the, he closed the show. He closed the party. He was like, lights were coming on and then his guys were going, okay, guys, we got to go to the next party. I was um, like Nancy McFadden at the top 100. She was always the last one to leave. Really? Yeah. She's like the little John of politics. He was really the little John of politics. <laughs> She also only drank uh, shots with orange, a little known fact. <laughs> Thrown with orange, man. And it wasn't just orange, it was blood orange. Oh. It was blood orange. So he would only do shots with blood orange. And I, honestly, it was pretty good. I will give him that. It was pretty good. Um, that, that's going to be called the Little John from now on. The Little John, yeah. Yeah, I like that, Tim. Don't steal it. Oh. Um, I'm going to have a podcast about that, actually. So. The Little John. Um, so, so we won't do that. Um, it's going to be socially distanced. Obviously that's in quotes, because how do you socially distance a party? But one of the ways that we're going to do is we're going to have it in the same venue. So we're still going to have that huge giant venue. Um, but we're going to cut down how many people can attend. And, and the reason I had brought up the 200 people earlier was because that's how it started. It's not going back to that, but it has become more of a Sacramento party now. I have people talking about the party when they see me from places in Sacramento, you know what I mean? That I've never even been. And someone goes, Oh, you're the guy with the party. Um, so it's become like a citywide event now, which is good, right? That's great. It's become an institution, but we have to, at least for this year, um, we have to stop that. So this year it's going to become more of how it started, which was a capital event. 
staffers, legislators, those that choose to come, and we're going to cut the attendance way back. So we're, whereas, you know, we've been having all, you know, close to 2000 people there. Um, I, we, we haven't come up with a number, um, Tim and John, but it will be, it will be, um, we're going to do a calculation with the venue and we're going to find out what is a safe number. And then we're going to be strict about who can come in. Um, you know, previously these years, I want people, I want people to attend, right? I want as many people as possible to attend. And so staffers can bring business cards and get in. I think this year we're going to have a very, very tight invitation, right? You have to have a ticket. You will have to have a ticket to get in. So honestly, that will make it even more fun. Have a little Willy Wonka. Well, a lot of people, uh, David, a lot of people are going to want to go here or go to the bash. So how do you decide on that 200? Yeah. Decide who gets in and who or whatever the number is, but... Yeah, um, I don't want to speak for the sponsors, but you know, obviously, the people that are you know paying you know paying the the majority of the money, they will have a say in how we're going to decide upon that. But what I can what I can say is that it's likely you know uh, members and and capital staff and uh, those those will be the folks who will be at the top of the list because that's how it started. So, uh, you know, members, capital staffers, you know, some of the regulators that attend on a regular basis, um, those folks. Um, I think it'll probably be a little less on the lobbyists because, you know, lobbyists and all of the ancillary folks in our, in our business have, are a huge part of this now. Probably 50% of the attendees, right, are lobbyists and consultants and, you know, campaign folks and their friends and their buddies, which is fine. I love that. But this year it has to be different. And so we, well, we, I would imagine you'll also have to amend this as we go along. I mean, if we, you know, right now, I think there, I think the last number I saw, they had vaccinated something on the order of 2 million people. They were supposed to have, I guess they were shooting for 20 million. They've hit 2 million. So at that rate, we won't have everyone, you know, they won't be vaccinating everyone in America for years. So depending on how the rollout goes, the vaccine, I would imagine if somehow we really kick it into gear and you get a hundred million people vaccinated in the first, you know, three months of the year, then you'll have more flexibility versus, you know, July and we're still at 50 million people vaccinated. You're going to really have to keep that number pretty tight. Yeah, you're right, Tim. So, so that number could expand if we're feeling like we're in a much safer environment and we're working with the venues at the same time. And obviously the venue is working with the, with the health departments. Um, And so we are getting, you know, real time information on how things are, what the trajectory is. So it could be worse, right? I mean, it could be, we have to cut back even further or it could be where we were able to open up a little bit, but whatever it is, we're going to make sure that we comply with what, what we can and cannot do. And we're not going to do anything that's unsafe. Um, but we will have the party. And um, right now it looks like July 15th. And that's another Thursday before the break. So they will have to come in on the Friday. So it's the same type of setup. They will have the check-in on the Friday. Um, and the Thursday night, we will have the party. And it'll probably be like, so we want to do it right before that summer break. Yeah. So that they are ready to go and have a good time. And they're both, break, both the houses are breaking on the same day this year? I, I think it's all fluid. Okay. But right now, that's what it is. Yeah. Do you think you'd have any trouble getting people uh, to show up, even if we have a really good spring after we get through this winter? John, people are going uh, to get people. <laughs> people are going would, to Applebee's. Of course, they're going to go to the batch. Yeah. So would you have people who are very skeptical about um, about the ability to go out in public and not wear masks, for example. I think by that time, everybody, maybe they will, but it seems like people are very, at least I'm talking personally, I'm very skeptical. Even if everybody, if Gavin Newsom came down or Mark Daly came down and said, hey, okay, you can go out now without a mask and go socialize again. I'd still be suspicious. I'd still be a bit worried. Robert Allen told you it was safe, John. <laughs> so what do you think, David? Is that a problem? Would that be a problem? Or do you think uh, if we get through the spring, okay? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's a problem, but I think it is an issue. Um, I think that regardless of how small we make it and regardless of how far away in time it is. um, And again, if it's bad, then we won't have it. Right. I mean, it's a place where, I mean, that's all a given, right? So please understand that's the assumption. 
Um, but it, assuming things are in a positive tra trajectory, assuming we're, we're much more open by July 15th and, you know, people are having events, maybe not the bash sized event, yeah. but they're having events. Um, yeah, I do think that there are still people that said, no, not for me. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Um, I think if, if people want to um, self, uh, that's what I'm looking for here, not self-quarantine. Self-regulate. Huh? Self-regulate. Yeah, or self-select and say, hey, you know what? I, good for them, but I'm just not at that place yet. I think that, I think that is real and that will happen and I respect it. Um, but we're going to put on a, the safest party that we can. Um, and hopefully for as many that we can to keep it while maintaining our safety. And, um, there will be people, like you said, John, that just are going to find that this isn't for them. And, and I, I respect that. And that's cool. That's good. That's fine. Well, and, uh, and we'll learn from your experience because we always do our top 100 bash, uh, mm -hmm. in August, you know, mid August, mm -hmm. so a month later. So, we have been wondering whether or not we will be doing that this year. Usually we do at the Sutter Club, which is not quite as expansive a room as, you know, your spot. But uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do something, but I'm also not certain that we will, or at least not there. We did, we did have the uh, Top 100 party outdoors once, and this was pure yeah. weekly luck. So it was 111 degrees while we were having our event, and it rained. It rained while it was 111. Were you in Georgia? It was unbelievable. <laughs> I was like, you have got to be kidding me that it's like we're getting the worst of both. So then it rained and it was muggy and everyone was damp. It was, I think it was like our second year of the top 100. We're like, you have got to, are you giving us a message here? Let's hope there's not. Well, you know, Tim, because, because of the weather factor, because the weather is always a factor in the bash. Um, but we've always managed to just kill it regardless. And honestly, we've had miracles. We've had weather miracles, not this year, but the year before it was raining, raining, raining. The moment uh, that we opened the doors, it stopped and the sun came out. We were like, what the hell? How did that happen? But it, it always works out, man. Um, so this year, because it will be in the summer, we're going to do some different stuff. Um, I think you might see outdoor entertainment. Um, because we're going to have that possibility because we won't have all the tent poles and right. outside, which is a beautiful venue out there, but we have to have, they have, we have all the tents up because of the possibility of rain and to keep the warmth. Um, but this year, because it's going to be warm, um, we might have outdoor entertainment. We're just playing with all the different things that we can do with a summer environment. Right. Um, but I, and, and I think also this year it's not going to be work. Well, actually, you know, people are saying, well, it's the back to session bash. It's the back to it's like, no, man, actually, it's been branded as The Bash. It is yeah. The Bash. And don't, please don't talk about that Republican thing that happens in January or I'm going to have a heart attack because... The Republican thing that happens in January? What do they do? The Republicans have a, um, a fundraiser in January. It's usually the week or two weeks after our party, and they call it the Back to Session Bash. And I'm like, you guys got to quit calling it that. And they were like, David, we were first. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. But, you know, there's probably a laundromat in Kenosha that's called the Super, a bowling alley in Kenosha called the Super Bowl. But, you know, at a certain point in time, you got to admit. I think Giuliani is actually having a press conference there uh, in a few at weeks. At the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to give it up, man. You, you, you just look silly now, but they won't do it. So, um, anyway. But over time, it's just been branded as The Bash. So, I think we're safe with The Bash. Yeah. Uh, and I think, frankly, everyone knows that this is a different year. You know, it's really funny where occasionally I'll see people having a discussion online and they'll say, well, I don't understand why this year's different. I'm like, really? You don't understand why this year's different? Where the fuck have you been for the last nine months? <laughs> you know, unless you're like, unless you're manning that's that uh, research station in Antarctica, shit is very different this year. For them, it's probably about the same. Everyone <laughs> else is very different to figure it out. You know, well, what happened? <laughs> so I think people are going to be very flexible. And, you know, I think they, they just want to do this. And I think everyone knows, well, I should say everyone, not that one religious guy that's going to have the big party, had the big party at the Capitol and now is apparently planning on having another one down in Southern California. He would just have the bash in two weeks, but everyone yeah, else. Yeah, just to prove, just to prove it. Yeah, he would just yeah. do it, you know, like, uh, 
How many people can I kill? What kind of power do I have? Well, well, we hope we're not in that position. <laughs> we hope no, that we hope that we're in a better place in in July. And um, but I tell you what, the sponsors, man, they are like we're doing this damn thing. We are doing this party. This is the party of the year. We are not setting this party aside for another year. But here's going to be the question, you guys. It's like, okay, we're doing this in July. Well, do we do another one really quick in January? Oh, like, yeah. Like, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys, you know, you got to go back to the, you got to go back to the standard. We got to get back on time. Yeah. It'll, you know, it'll happen. How much lead time do you need? To set it up or to know if it's a go or no go? Uh, so I start working on it in July. I start working on all of the specifics. Cause if you notice, like all the bars are always different. The food's always different. The setup's always different. The, you know, of course the entertainment's different. And then the music uh, that you hear when you come into the party, like I do for the first, I'd say 100 minutes, like every single minute of that is orchestrated by myself and the DJ, either Eddie Adul or DJ Billy Lane where for six months, we're just going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, okay, stop that at two minutes and 32 seconds, drop this 15 seconds from this song in, and then move into this song, right? So 100 minutes, because in, 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 you know, John and Tim, that's really important because I believe that's one of the keys to the success of the party is understanding the demographic of the party as it relates to the time. So I know that at five o'clock when the doors open, most of the people there um, are of a certain age, right? And a certain mindset. And I know that it, over that 100 minutes, I know exactly who's coming in that door and what music is gonna grab them and make them high five the person next to them. And so with a DJ, we're gonna go back and, back and forth and architect that entire 100 minutes. So that takes a lot of time. Um, and then, um, so we start on that and we start picking out the bars and we start picking out the alcohol and we start, you know, working with the sign people to create, cause we scrape out that restaurant area. Yeah. We scrape it all out and then we have to rebuild everything, um, with ice sculptures. I'm going to say who decides the ice sculpture theme. Yeah. I mean, I do, but we, I work, you know, with the, with the folks like Monique, who is amazing. Monique, uh, Vera. Yeah, Vera. Awesome. So she takes my thing where I go, hey, how about this with this, with a little bit of that? And she goes, okay. <laughs> and she makes it happen. Monique is just amazing. And then, of course, Chris Lindstrom is awesome because he's like the liaison between us and the sponsors. And he's saying, okay, here's what he wants to do. And they go, okay, that sounds cool. Maybe you can confirm internally I've heard the nickname for this event is David's Wedding. And every year it's referred to, oh, we got to work on David's wedding. Uh, yeah. You know what? I think, yeah, I think there's some hard feelings internally sometimes. <laughs> but so, uh, David, on the results speak for themselves. Hey, they so, away from the past for a second. Uh, you've also got, you just started something else, a podcast, political-ish. Yeah, political what, So what happens with that? And why political-ish? Why is that the name of it? Well, because, uh, yeah, you know. I, political shit was too dirty. <laughs> what? Because political shit was too dirty. <laughs> yeah, political shit. I like that. I, that's not bad. Um, yeah, because it, I, I make my living in politics, but you know, it's just ish. You know, I'm more interested in other stuff, to be very honest. Um, I'm interested in like a lot of true crime. I'm interested. I'm gonna in say a lot of true crime on there. Yeah, MMA, true crime, Hollywood, uh, music. So, um, but then I do have, um, you know, uh, legislators and other folks on to talk about stuff, but not really politics. Um, so I had uh, the uh, Assemblyman Kevin, Kevin Mullen came on um, and uh, he talked about, uh, we, he and I went over our top nine hip hop or top 12 hip hop songs. Um, I didn't he, know Kevin Mullen had 12 top he was a DJ. He was a DJ. Dude, yeah, he was down. He, he was like with it, man. He knew what was up. And so we, we just went back and forth on our favorite hip hop songs. And I got to give Kevin, you know, some of them Mullen much respect. Then we're going to have um, Senator Lena Gonzalez is coming on um, in, I think, three weeks. And she and I are going to do an episode on her favorite Morrissey songs. So, oh. <laughs> and, and well, Morrissey slash The Smiths. 
There you go. She is all about Morrissey and the Smiths. Wow. That one is a little out of my wheelhouse. So I have to study for that one. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing is every real Smiths fan knows that the best record is Hatful of Hollow, which is like a BBC recordings. It's not like an official record, but it's their best record. Oh my God. Hatful of Hollow. Dude, he's going deep cuts. And then we'll probably have John on to talk about his favorite Perry Como hits. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you're yeah. selling John Short. You the know Ron Howard was the bass player in a band in Mexico in the 60s? Oh, my God. The, the Narcos? Yeah, that was it. Yeah. And we yeah. didn't get paid after each gig. We just collected the material, you know? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, John, I- also, John also saw this band. It's funny. He's telling me the story one day. And he goes, oh, man, the best band I saw down there. Uh, Los Duk Duk's. And I was like, wait, you got to be kidding me. Like in the kind of world oh, of they were great. lodge band yeah. music of the 60s, Los Duk Duk are legends. And John just casually was like, oh yeah, they played my graduation or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> They're really and cool. I'm like, you got, this is like saying like that uh, the Doors played your graduation or something, you know? And John just like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, Los Duk Duk. We yeah, no, nah, they were okay. You know, <laughs> these musicians come and go, you know. <laughs> so, so as far as the, as the, um, as the as the podcast goes, yeah, I, you know, honestly, I'm in a place in my life where I can do stuff for fun now. You know, um, I don't need to. There are certain endeavors I could do. I don't need to make money off of them. I just do them because I enjoy them and I have the ability to do it. And so this podcast is one of them. So I'm just doing stuff that I think is fun and that I like. Um, so if anything spurs my interest, um, I'll do an episode on it. So those are the things that I like. You know, I happen to know a lot of folks in Hollywood and in the music business, and then. I'm knowing more and more people now in the MMA UFC area. Um, I love true crime. So that's in when I had the ability to get the lead detective on the Dorothea Puente case, like I had to do that. Yeah. It was also the lead detective on the land park massacre that happened over on Robertson. You know, you, um, you did that episode and I had never really heard anything about that. I never, the, somehow. I what missed year was that? that? When did that happen? Hmm. I, you're going back now. Why am I thinking like mid eighties, late eighties? Wow. No, it happened right before the first desert storm because that's what knocked it out of the newspapers. And that's probably why you didn't hear about it, Tim, Um, because an entire family was killed in land park on, is it Robertson, right? There's Robertson. Yeah. Yeah. On Robert in Robertson and uh, John Cabrera was the lead detective on it. And he was on the show. And what happened was two days later, we declared war and entered the, the uh, what was that, Desert Storm? The yeah. first one? That would have been like 90, 91, 92. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Because I got called up. I actually got deployed for that war. And <laughs> so what happened was, unfortunately, that us entering that war knocked that off of the front pages. So wait, yeah. Let's go back a second. So you got deployed. You actually served there? Were you? Where were you? I got, uh, so, uh, well... I was living in um, off of Fulton in some apartment off of Fulton. And um, no, I was living in an apartment off of Fair Oaks. And uh, I was in the, I was in the reserve air force reserves and I got a call and they're like, you have 48 hours to report to Travis air force base. I was in the reserves, but they can call you up to active duty in wartime. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, you, you have 48 hours to get your stuff put together and report to Travis air force base. So I reported to Travis Air Force Base, and then they divided us into threes. And one third, we're going to go to Saudi. One third, we're going to Germany. And what, because I was a medic. And one third, we're going to go to England. And I, thank God, went to England. Um, and we set up a hospital at an Air Force Base called RAF Waddington in, in, um, in Northeast England. And um, we only had one patient. <laughs> One oh. dude sprained his ankle because that was the war. Remember where we were like a hot knife through butter and that thing was yeah. overpassed. It took yeah. like a hundred hours or something. Yeah. The yeah. Bombing. We, yeah. We had set up a, an airplane hangar with like 400 beds and we were ready, right. For all the casualties. And we had one dude who had sprained his ankle in in theater and then he came over. So yeah, thank God the war from that war for me ended up being not bad. Um, but yeah, a lot of the folks that were in my squadron, they went over to, to Saudi and actually had to do time in theater. What, whatever happened with that land park case? Did they find who no. did it? With that? Well, John Cabrera, the lead detective, he, he believes he knows who did it. Uh, it's really, it's a, such an interesting case, John. You should listen to that episode 
because the people involved, the family that was killed were probably, probably doing a favor to a friend that they were loyal to. And that friend that they were loyal to was probably doing some real bad shit. And he had them hold on to a safe. And the people that this guy, they held on the safe, that they were holding on to the safe for, he ended up disappearing and he's never been found. And they believe, John believes that the people that disappeared, the friend, they came, they, they beat out of him where the safe was and they came over to the house and they were the ones that got into the safe because the safe was open. And the, in the way that the family was arranged in the home, it looks like they held a couple people while they took the guy out to the garage to open the safe. Um, but they've never found anybody. They've never found the person. The detective Cabrera believes he knows who did it and he's waiting to this day for him to mess up so he can get him. Yeah. But it's wow. a really but you never heard of that, right, John? You never heard of no. that massacre. And I lived in Lamb Park. I don't I don't you know yep. an entire heard of family. What were you doing on that site? <laughs> you know, where was where was Howard? Well <laughs> <laughs> they never caught me. You know, I do remember on, on Dorothea Puente. I was at AP then, and we staked out the house there on F Street, and there were two funny things about that. One uh, was that one of the bodies was buried under an, in an area where a lot of the reporters were standing around waiting and, and scoping this house out. You know, I mean, they didn't know what was going on, and people were waiting for the cops to talk. The second one was one of the police officers talking to us on the street, sort of briefing us. All of a sudden, he stops, and he runs across the street and up the steps of a house across the street and comes out a few seconds later with the guy, he's got him by the neck. <laughs> it was a bust. He said, oh, there's nothing like a good pinch. <laughs> and brought him down, they threw him in the, I don't know what it was for. Did you, call, I, you know. did, did you call that a good pinch? <laughs> he called it a good pinch. I like, I like that. that. That's, that's an old, that's an old police term. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> one of those strategists, I think it was uh, Roger Salazar, I think. They were actually up in the house. Yeah. Briefly. That's right. Um, yeah, he uh, texted me because he, here's what I here's what I found so interesting about that episode on Dorothea Puente, because, again, the lead, the guy that actually dug into the hole and grabbed the bone. Oh, was oh, he was the detective, right? He was the lead detective. And he said while he was digging that hole, he looked up and Dorothea was staring at him from the window like, OK, he's got. Me. And that's when she went to the bar and disappeared and headed down to LA and she was on the land. Yeah. Yeah. But well, she was in and out of the zebra club. I remember at the time. And then that other bar over on ninth uh, between L and K Henry's Henry's. Yeah. Oh, you went to Henry's and she, yeah. In fact, one of the character, one of the players in that drama, the older guy was getting social security payment. She met him in Henry's and got him to a hotel and anesthetized him with some drug or something while she yeah. robbed him, you know? That was I always remember Henry's and the Zebra Club. I always associate him. And right across the street from her house, well, not quite across the street, El Mirage, which was then turned into that uh, soul food restaurant, but it was the El Mirage back in those days, and she was, that was another spot. God, yeah, you should, you know, John, you should listen to that episode because Cabrera was there, and what what you'll take away from that episode was really how annoyed you get with the media. No offense. <laughs> Thanks, David. They, they, the media gets annoyed with the media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they portrayed her as this old grandma, right? They portrayed her as an old grandma, you know, there but for the grace of your grandma, you know. And But as you dug into her story, you realized she was just a stone-cold, heartless grifter from day one. She had been in prison twice. Um, she had had a previous um, daycare or help, uh, what are those, uh, care home down the street, which is on the market right now for over a million dollars. It's a beautiful home that someone bought and redid. Is that near 21st and C? Is it that? There's one there that's gorgeous. It's like three or four L. stories. I think it's on L. Oh, okay. Um, but it's a beautiful home that she had finagled her way into, and she had been caught doing the same stuff, but she just hadn't graduated to killing them yet. But she was a horrible, horrible, bad seed of a human being. And if that's what I enjoyed about that story was, oh, my God, she was just a bad seed. She wasn't even Latina. Her she, yeah. they came from a dude she married when he was 19. Yeah. There, they, there was a big fight over what, not a fight, but a dispute among reporters over 
what is her name? Is yeah. it Dorothea Montalvo or is it Dorothea Puente or is it Doroth some compromise, Dorothea Montalvo Puente? Yeah, I mean, both Montalvo and Puente were, were Mexican dudes that she had married and then later left. And thank God she didn't kill them. They left. Um, but yeah, she has a, I think it's Dorothy Gray, but she's not even a Dorothea. She's a Dorothy. <laughs> Dottie. <laughs> she's just a grifter. It was a good story. That's really, yeah, that's, that was quite an episode. Yeah, I, I lived downtown. I moved downtown in 86 and I lived uh, in the old Miriam building, which is long gone underneath of the expanded convention center. And I remember hearing about this on the news and I walked down there and I saw them digging like that. I was like, oh, what's going on? And it was, I was like, man, they have a, like an earth mover and like they, they're kind of doing some big digging. And then sure enough, this stuff happened, you know, the next day the story exploded that they had found bodies. And, uh, and then later, a few years later in about 91, I think I dated a woman who lived in the house next door. She hadn't lived there during the time. Wow. Her kitchen window looked out on the spot where a bunch of the bodies had been buried. So it was a little creepy. Oh, yeah, that is that's that's crazy. That 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 would be something. I you know I got to talk to Salazar. <laughs> Live in that house. Yeah. Um, you know, I, sort of, they embrace it and they put uh, they do a full Halloween thing and they put uh, you know a little old lady mannequin in the window and stuff. They the people who own that house now sort of embrace the history. They're, they're leaning in. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, you know, I used to do a monthly. A spoken series. I don't know what you call it. It's called the Living Library, and we would invite someone with you know a story to tell in Sacramento history. Oh, that's cool. And we did it for five years, actually, every month over a time test of books. And uh, we had Russ Solomon who founded Tower Records, and uh, you know a bunch of people came through. But one time we did a look at Sacramento true crime, and we had five detectives and reporters who had worked on all these cases and the stories they told, it was just well, unbelievable. Some of the things that have happened well, in Sacramento over the years. Yeah. If you're, if you've been covering Sacramento, you know, in the news, I, I don't know, John, were you, you weren't necessarily a Sacramento reporter, right? You were more statewide stuff. Yeah. More of a state political reporter. Yeah. So, but we covered you, big cases here though, like Leonard Lake and Charles Zang. We covered well, that. Yeah, yeah, we have had so many cases that people have forgotten about. Oh yeah, um, we've had more cases that people have forgotten about than other areas have had cases, and I don't know why. Um, you remember we had Morris Solomon, the guy yeah. Down yeah. York, who was killing women. We had, of course, the Golden State Killer, might be the most prolific of all time. The Zodiac Killer was just down I eighty, right? We yeah. had the Gallegos. We had both Gerald and Charlene Gallegos. Oh, I remember that one. We covered that one too. Yeah. A young couple at the Arden Fair Mall, and they were just horrific people. So I don't know what it is in <laughs> Sacramento, man. Oh, Richard Trenton Chase, the vampire killer. Vampire killer. Yeah. Um, and so, by the way, so the, the episode I'm going to be doing um, on January 13th, I, uh, Anne Marie Schubert, the Sacramento district attorney, has agreed to come on for an hour and a half. And we're going to go over her chase for the Golden State Killer. And I'm really looking forward to that one because, I, I mean, this was such a, an evil human being who changed Sacramento. Um, he changed Sacramento. Sacramento was never the same after the East Area Rapist. People who had never locked their doors in Sacramento. Sacramento was like an adolescent and the East Area Rapist made it an adult. Um, I, I live here we had moved here shortly before that we moved here in 73 and I lived in Foothill farms, which was right there. He actually struck maybe three or four blocks from my parents' house. It was actually one of the rare cases where he couldn't, I think he couldn't get in. He got scared off somehow, but uh, it was, I mean, I was young enough that I didn't even know what rapist meant. Mm -hmm. So I thought he was ripping people's skin off. My vision of the Easter rapist is he would break in and rip your skin off. So I was scared to death of the East Area Rapist as a kid. And I remember that vividly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've always, I've read all the books as they came out way before mm -hmm. uh, the Gone in the Dark book. I had read the book written by the detective uh, that had written one about five, six years before that. And follow, have followed that case since it was happening, you know, in real time. And the fact that he was still fucking living here in Citrus Heights is unbelievable. Citrus Heights, man. 
Like, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. There was a point there, Tim, where I thought, okay, maybe this is all made up. Maybe this is like five different people and maybe that guy died. But hell no. He was a real monster and he was living in, in like an 1800 square foot home in Citrus Heights. Oh, yeah. What the hell? So and she managed to not get in trouble. I mean, all it would have taken was one DNA swab at some point over the last, whatever, 18 years since they started that, you know, the law where they were swabbing everyone that had a felony and he would have been done. And he just had to keep his nose clean and he did. And he did. He was a smart guy. I mean, in his own way, right? In his oh, own way. He had to be very, to get away with that level of depravity for as long as he did, he had to be very smart. I mean, he was obviously something really wrong with him, but he wasn't stupid. He wasn't stupid, no. So, so she's going to come on on January 13th and she's going to do an hour and a half. Wow. We're going to go over. One of the things I want to talk about, of course, is how he, the East Area Rapist, as we knew him then, completely changed Sacramento as we know it today. It really did. And oh, I've, yeah. talked to, I've talked to younger people about this and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, Sacramento was such a different place, man. And this guy came out and it really changed how we saw this city. It really, really did. Um, and then, of course, we're going to talk about her chase for him with DNA and staking out and staking him out. And, you know, I give Anne Marie so much credit for that. Well, when you get to ask, you ask her my question. So serial killers of his nature are known for keeping trophies. And he took a ton of stuff from the people that he raped. And also when he was the vice cellular ransacker, he was taking all this stuff and it wasn't generally things of value it was things like driver's licenses and pictures and stuff like that and generally guys of his proclivity keep that stuff as trophies and then they find it later you know when they're arrested they find a box of all this stuff that those guys keep from what i understand they never found anything except for his dna to connect him to the crimes so i wonder if she thinks that he still got it and it's just hidden somewhere that they haven't found? Or did he get rid of it because he didn't want to take a chance on getting caught? I'd be curious to get her insight. Because it was very unusual that, that, that there was nothing. Because he took a ton of stuff from, those, from his victims. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question, Tim. I will, I've written it down. Oh. I'll, I'll find out about the trophies because that is interesting. Um, and then the latest episode that we did... <laughs> was on the 2003 recall with Jill Stewart, who was the leading, uh, at least what, I, she was the journalist that was in the news a lot at that time, Jill Stewart, yeah, down, down in LA. Um, she had just been let go at, I think, LA Weekly, or it was an LA periodical. I think she's at the Herald Examiner at one point, yeah, I thought. Yeah, yes. And so she was actually freelancing. She was oh, uh -huh. freelance yeah. work. And um, she said she was just at the right time at the right place at the right time. And so people were picking her up all over, you know, Chronicle would pick her up, the B would pick her up and stuff. You know, um, the recall is getting a, I mean, now obviously there's some discussion about it, but I, you know, I was thinking about the recall of 2003 and how that relates to what's happening now. And the one constant in, in a recall is that you have this overarching issue and then it was electricity market meltdown. Mm -hmm. California was just ravaged by that and the governor's handling of it. And I think that triggered Going forward, that was a that was a big trigger. That really got a lot of people involved in it. That and the fact that getting elected, reelected in two thousand two was really he probably shouldn't have been reelected. But there was some consultant wizardry there, Gary South and others, you know, who divided the Republican ranks and Davis managed to squeak in. But it was a huge issue. Well, now it's not it's not like that. We have the pandemic, right? But the only way that a recall now works, it seems to me, is if there's a repeated systematic series of mistakes in handling it in the, in the electricity market there was there was a lot going up that davis did not do and could have done now we've got one big i mean as i see it, we've got one mistake davis made that was in the spring excuse me that newsom made to ease things up when he probably shouldn't have we saw a spurt since then but other than that I mean, the restaurant you know the french laundry restaurant yeah i just don't see any traction what do you think um, you know, and actually the episode, the episode is really good about that. Um, Jill talks a lot about the parallels or lack of parallels um, between 2003 and now. And I kind of wanted to stay away from that in my episode. Um, I was trying to mainly, you know, focus on 2003, just because I think a lot of younger people have forgotten about that too. 
Um, but if you're asking me uh, separately from that, I, I do think it's very different. And one of the other things that I think is very different is remember in 2003, the Republicans still had all of that machinery that they had from the Wilson era. So they had people who had just come from the governor's office, right? Like five years ago. Um, they had, uh, I think, five statewide offices that they had all just held five years ago. So they had a lot of that architecture still remaining that they could gin up really quick for the right person. Um, also, I think something different now is it doesn't seem like you have folks like Cruz Bustamante, right? Because Cruz really was pretty critical to this because when he came out and said, vote no against the recall, but if you're going to vote for it, vote for me, that really was Katie bar the door. That opened it up. I mean, then it was like, okay, it's on. And I thought that was really tough for Gray because Democrats could go now, okay, well, we'll just choose this Democrat, right? Um, he opened that door, Cruz did. And I don't know if I see that happening in this. Well, no, then the recall people had a huge, I mean, they had a big advantage with somebody like Schwarzenegger, the candidate in waiting. He was just, you know, a media star, obviously. Now, it's, I don't see anybody out there same way. I mean, who's the best known statewide Republican politician? And it seems to me it's the former San Diego mayor, Kevin Falconer. Who yeah. else is out there? Yeah. That would, you know, and even that is, you know, problematic. I just don't see the distraction well, this time problem, around. Forgetting, we also have Chachi. Chachi <laughs> is a, a very you know, strong yeah, Republican. Right. I believe he still lives in California. Could offer a serious challenge. Um, probably would get endorsed by Trump. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, and I think John, you hit on it. That's why I tried to stay away from this stuff that's happening now because I just yeah. see 2003 was so different. It was such a different dynamic yeah. with you know, totally. Ariana Huffington and Arnold Schwarzenegger and you know Daryl Issa pouring in millions of dollars. Yeah. It was just a different deal. So I figured that if he, uh, I, I think he put in 1.7 million back then. And that amount now is just shy of $3 million in taking inflation. So there would have to be a money bag out there. It's got several million dollars to spend right off the top to get the thing qualified and get it on the ballot. Then there would have to be somebody who would finance an actual recall campaign and well, spend the money on the TV and stuff. So It was an Orange County donor that just donated 500000 Yeah, bucks. I saw 500000 bucks from this Irvine outfit. I saw I have not read a story, but I saw Jeremy White tweeted something on that yesterday. Uh, that's a start, you know, if, if you, but it just doesn't seem right now it has that level of attention, you know? I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, but the 2003 is a great dissection because it was so yeah. different. And don't forget, we had the dot-com bust um, yeah. that, that had just occurred, which killed our finances. Um, and which was man-made, right? It's unlike the pandemic that was yeah. man-made. Yeah. And then Gray Davis went and did the uh, the car tax. What the was car tax? Yeah, tax, sure. Yeah. Which created a furor amongst you know the everyday Joe, and you know they were able to capitalize on that. So there was just so many different things then. Um, yeah. You know, I think it needs to stand on on its own. What's that called? Sui generis. Is that a word? <laughs> yeah. That's well, a that's what you lawyers say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will say that um, it, I, I agree that there is a very different dynamic at play, but the one thing that is different now that I think actually more favors a recall is I think there is a very much an anti-government, anti-elected official sentiment that's much broader than it was then. I, I Maybe it's because of social media, but Boy, I see so much more complaining from people about politics and about politicians and about people taking advantage of their position, which frankly, the, the French laundry story played right into it. I mean, Newsom saying, hey, stay at home, be careful, don't gather. And then not only does he gather, but he gathers at a you know, $1,000 plate restaurant with a bunch of political uh, political operatives. So it really played into that. And in 2003, maybe there was that sentiment, but I don't remember this kind of broad anti-government sentiment that seems just overarching now. I don't, uh, I don't think that was a narrative in 2003 um, from, from 
my memory and what the reading that I did and from talking with Jill, I don't think that was a real narrative. I think Arnold tried to make it a narrative in his campaign, mm. um, right? I'm beholden to no one, but he introduced that, right? In his, in his campaign and when he was running, I don't think you heard that from the folks that were behind that recall, Tim. Yeah, it just seems like that's something where now people are more receptive. I just feel like any recall would be more receptive. Like, let's throw a wrench in the works, which frankly, you know, I have no hard evidence for this, but I really think that Trump's election in 2016 in large part was due to a lot of people who were like, I'm, the government's not, not responsive to me and it's not taking care of me. It's not addressing my issues. So I'm just going to throw a wrench in the whole works and I'm going to give him Donald Trump. Yeah, I think he was definitely a fuck them all vote. Yeah, exactly. And and I feel like there's a lot of people out there who are like that and they'd be like, you know, Newsom did this, fuck them. <laughs> you know, we'll see. I mean, you you have to have more than that, but there's it just seems like that's a much more common mindset these days than it was in my memory, you know, 17 years ago. And not to not to stay on this subject too long, but the other thing that we will have to take into consideration is how does social media affect a recall? Right. Because social media was pretty much non-existent back in 2003. Hard to believe. But it, it is omnipresent now and really is a, a, a thought driver. So it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the social media plays on this, too. Yeah. Well, David Quintana, uh, Tim, did you have anything else? I have one question, John. So, David Quintana, how much time do you spend working out every day? <laughs> Twice a day. I'd say three and a half hours a day. Whoa! Yeah, three and a half, three and a half hours. hours a day. Yeah, yeah. It's you know what? Days a week or seven days a week? Uh, seven days a week. Seven oh. days a week. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, sometimes I can't. You know, something might happen. Um, but that's pretty rare. But if it does, I can't sleep that night. Um, but <laughs> I, you know what, though? I'll tell you this: my best thoughts come from the gym. So when I'm in the gym, I'm thinking of things. Right? I'm thinking of stuff. Thinking of stuff. Thinking of stuff. Um, and so the bash came out of a workout. I was, I was working out and I was like, Hey, uh, the secrets out. Yeah. This, you know, I was like, this might be a good idea. Clink, 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 you know, <laughs> changing the plates. Hmm. I wonder if I did this clink, clink, clink. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a great, it's a great way to think. And for a guy that doesn't drink and doesn't go out and, you know, I never, I don't go to fundraisers, you know, Hey, what, why not keep, uh, keep trying to hang on. Okay. The, the, the question is answered. That's, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've been asked that question. Well, I think our 20 minutes turned into 60 minutes, but that's still, it's great. So David Kinkana, thank you very much. This has been terrific. Thank Tim Foster, thank you. Thanks, John. And uh, this is John Howard, and we will see you next time around. Thanks again. Bye-bye.